The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. American soldiers fall in line, and their unity is part of their pride. They dress the same, they march the same, they even eat the same food and have the same haircut. But outside of public view, do they treat each other the same? In a place where unity is strength, and a person supposedly survives and advances on their own merits, does race matter? It sure did in Vietnam. They were everyday Joes wanting to live the American dream, and all of a sudden they found themselves in Vietnam and then would come back home and wouldn't have the same rights that other Americans had. You're trying to fight someone else's freedom, and you don't have freedom of your own with your own country there. There's two things that I learned from my mother that I still remember. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and God help those who help themselves. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, African-American soldiers and the Vietnam War. While the Vietnam War raged overseas, unrest over civil rights was growing at home. For many African-American soldiers, the two conflicts were tough to reconcile. Imagine leaving 1960s Alabama, only to arrive in Vietnam and see a Confederate flag flying. Or serving 22 years in the Air Force, only to be disobeyed by subordinates because of the color of your skin. Or putting your life in the line for your country, only to come home in uniform and be forced to sit in the back of the bus. On the front lines in Vietnam, whites and blacks fought side by side as brothers, looking out for one another. But when they returned to base, those friendships often fell apart. James Westheider is author of Fighting on Two Fronts, African Americans in the Vietnam War. I spoke with him about the racial tension that traveled with American soldiers across the Pacific. Jim, conventional wisdom says racial strife in America in this time was lessened on the battlefront in Vietnam, where the men bonded as they fought a common enemy. In fighting on two fronts, you found race relations for Vietnam soldiers to be much more complex. Uh, Yes, it was true for combat units that there was less racism. Away from the battlefield, there was often very stark racial separation, there was racial animosity, and on several bases, stateside and overseas, there were racial gang fights that broke out. Did you come to understand that it actually shocked the military, as well as the officers, that this had exploded on them during the Vietnam era? There had been a sense of denial of the growing problem earlier, but when they started having large-scale race riots like at Camp Lejeune, even Cameron Bay in Vietnam, it did shock them into reality. There's also strong evidence that African Americans are being criminalized and jailed for things their white counterparts were not. Um, And they were. The military actually admitted that. They did a study, and they found that African Americans were, in fact, being arrested, tried, punished, and imprisoned in disproportionate numbers compared to whites. The military has what's known as non-judicial punishment. And those are minor infractions, uh, being late for work detail, hair not 
uh, cut to military regulation, things like that. African-Americans were far more susceptible to be written up for things like that than were whites. African-Americans were also far more susceptible to have general court-martial charges brought against them. And I want to point out that African-Americans that contested the charges and demanded a court-martial, they were acquitted at a higher rate than were white offenders. And the military itself admitted that this was evidence that African-Americans were often being unfairly prosecuted. What percentage of the military leaders were African-American? How many of those were officers? Mm, Not that many. That was another problem. Even though the armed forces were making a concerted effort to bring in more black officers, the officer corps averaged only about 2 to 4% African-American. There was only one African-American battalion commander. There was really a lack of black leadership in the military administration, in Pentagon, and on the field in Vietnam. Tech Sergeant Ron Basham was one of the few black commanders, and Ron found himself in more than one fight with white subordinates who didn't respect his command. He says some men disobeyed him and blatantly disregarded orders because of his skin color, and sometimes that got them killed. Well, you say, I need this job done. I, I mean, I expect you to do this. And I said, well, you know, why did I listen to you so-and-so didn't say I had to do it? I said, well, you're not under him. You're under me. And then they would do a half job. Now you got to penalize people to do the job right because you have an idiot that doesn't want to do the job right because he has bias, which he should not have had when he raised his hand to get into the Air Force. But some of them chose not to listen, so they're not here now. A lot of them died. Hey, just simple, clean your weapon. As soon as you come out of a firefight, you, you clean it immediately so it doesn't jam or blow up on your face. But you'd be surprised how many guys had weapons blown up their face because they didn't want to clean their weapon. They did not want to respect the stripes because of the color that was wearing them. They figured John Wayne could give them a better answer. Vietnam was the first fully integrated major war the U.S. had waged. But fully integrated mainly meant more integrated than things were back home. Chris Moore spent most of 1970 in Vietnam as part of the Army Engineers 46th Battalion. Growing up, uh, we had to sit in the uh, balcony when my brother and I would go to the movies on Saturdays. Uh, That didn't happen in the Army. It was fully integrated. You go to the mess halls, you ate the same chow. Uh, You know, you didn't see that kind of overt segregation but the subtle things were still there. He means things like Confederate flags. A lot of guys flew Confederate flags. My answer to that was I went down in the motor pool once and I knew a Vietnamese who was a pretty good artist and I had him paint two black fists on the bumper of my truck. Well, the platoon sergeant who was in charge of uh, maintenance there saw it and he went hog wild. I said, if they want to fly their Confederate flags, I'm going to run black fist on my bumper. So maybe even before Colin Kaepernick was uh, kneeling down, uh, we found ways to subtly and not so subtly fight back against that kind of racism. Um, There was one base in Vietnam that that, um, the flagpole would have the U.S. flag and the Confederate flag. Samuel Black is director of African-American programs at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
He curated a traveling exhibit about African Americans in the Vietnam War called Soul Soldiers. Didn't the military clamp down on flying the Confederate flag? They did eventually, but, you know, a choice like that, what goes up on a flagpole, that's an officer's decision. And that's where it became rather difficult. Rules and regulations in the military is all a matter of who is empowered to enforce them and whether they will enforce them. To take it back a little bit further, in 1948, when President Truman had initiated Executive Order 9981 to integrate all branches of the U.S. military, a few years later, we were fighting in the Korean War, and it was still segregated units. There were some generals, including MacArthur, who refused to integrate. You can have an executive order from the highest office, the commander-in-chief of the military, the president of the United States, and it's still those orders still not followed. So the same thing was taking place to a smaller degree in Vietnam in terms of flying Confederate flags and other types of things. Black veterans talk about simmering frustration from seemingly minor things that really did make a difference. What magazines were available to read? What kind of food was served? What music did they play on military radio? Always, it seemed to them, there was a preference for white America. So many of the hurtful racial tensions were small, but felt big and really served to divide the men. Talk to me about some of the ones you lay out in your work. For instance, the special handshakes called daps, which became a source of friction. Oh, the dapping uh, among African Americans. The term dap is a corruption of a Vietnamese word that actually means beautiful. And it was a ritualized handshake done by African Americans. Many of the signs, one indicated love for your brother. Another, a slashing movement across the throat, indicated death to MPs, but it was a sign of bonding among the brothers in Vietnam. And it often caused friction because African-Americans might start doing an extended dap, for example, in the chow line. And whites behind them didn't want to wait. Words would be exchanged. Next thing you know, a fight would break out over something like that. That's, that's back in the rear with the gear. Uh, that's where the dap got long. This again is Army veteran Chris Moore. Uh, I got frustrated by it one time when I was in 90th replacement getting ready to leave. And I said, man, I'm buying everybody a Coke. And I stood up to go get a Coke at, at the bar. And it took me half an hour because I couldn't pass the table without giving up the dap. And then I came back with five Cokes in my hand and had to give up TT Dap to the same guy. So sometimes it got it got, even got out of hand for us, to tell you the truth. But it was just an elaborate greeting, a way of saying, hello, soul brother, I'm here with you, and, and we're in this together, and we should stick together. And that's what it was. Haircuts, too, became a source of contention. Most military barbers didn't know how to cut black hair. Here's James Westheider. Uh, you obviously had to have a regulation haircut. So this could often lead to petty violations for African-Americans where it did not lead for the same thing for whites. And one of the things a lot of black personnel wanted was more, not just barbers, but other personnel that were familiar with black needs. 
uh, was the same thing in the PX, the Post Exchange, and places like that. There were very few black hair care products, for example. And black magazines, such as Jet or Ebony, were usually in extremely short supply. So African Americans felt that they were basically serving in a white military, that it wasn't geared to their needs. No, we cut each other's hair. Uh, there was always somebody in the black community, even when I was in college at Grambling, uh, most of us didn't go to a regular barbershop when there were black barbershops, so we cut each other's hair. Um, and that's just out of necessity. Uh, white guy didn't know what to do with our hair. Plus, the most we wanted was a line. We were, we were trying to grow big afros. It was a symbol of pride. Having an afro was a symbol of pride. It let people know who you were and, and that you weren't about to take uh, a bunch of gump off somebody, even if they outranked you. And we'd let it get as long as we could before some major or colonel would tell us to cut it. Music also showed the racial divide. Jim Westheider says black soldiers desperately miss the soul music they'd been listening to and connecting with at home. Keep in mind, during the Vietnam War era, really, that generation spoke for itself through their music. Music was instrumental to the civil rights movement, to the protests of the 60s, and to the service personnel in Vietnam. So the type of music you were able to listen to was extremely important to you. And this was a major cause of friction. Well, I found very little African-American music when I was over there, you know. This is Ron Basham again. We went into the jaw hall, you heard country western music. You have some, they had to do that because it found the top ten, you know. But otherwise than that, it was primarily country western music most of the time. So you were being ignored. You didn't exist. 23 hours a day, they catered to other tastes. Uh, there was one hour a day, somewhere around 1 or 2 o'clock, that the Soul Show came on. Uh, generally, you could not listen to it, but if we were ever in for stand down, uh, we made sure to turn the radio to the Soul Show because it was the only time of the day that you could get that kind of music on Armed Forces Radio. Most of the time, we had our own music. A lot of guys had reel-to-reel tape decks. It would be blasting, and that would be the hooch where everybody would hang out where the music was playing. So not being able to get a haircut or listen to the music, we self-segregated and we took care of it ourselves. While the soldiers were fighting for black culture in Vietnam, the civil rights movement was going full bore at home, and the two wars sometimes collided. Here's Sam Black again, the museum curator. One of the questions I had asked was to find out if the draft was used as a weapon against the civil rights movement. What do you think? One in particular, very interesting man, Michael Flournoy. When I met Mr. Flournoy, my question was answered. My name is Mike Flournoy. I got drafted in 62. 
December 62. I was a senior in college at uh, Alabama A&M University in Norman, Alabama. At that time, I had a student deferment, and I joined CORE. CORE stands for Congress of Racial Equality, and we got involved with local civil rights activity in Huntsville, Alabama. You know, we did sit-ins, we did boycotts, we did margin demonstration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but Michael went back and got so much involved in the activities of CORE that he said he neglected his college studies. So he said he had actually dropped out of school and worked for CORE full-time and then later was arrested in Louisiana doing uh, voter registration uh, drives for CORE. So Mr. Flournoy, while he was incarcerated in Louisiana, his jailer had contacted the draft board back in Pittsburgh. But I lost my deferment, I believe, because I did join the Corps. And that belief come from, I started running into young African-Americans that had joined civil rights organization when I was in, first got in the military. And it seemed as though they all, once they joined Corps, all of a sudden they were drafted. So we used to talk about that. We were the group that was taken from one war front, which was the Civil Rights War Front, and we were put into the hot war front because most of us ended up in Vietnam. Jim Westheider says Mike Flournoy's experience was not uncommon. He says many men involved in the civil rights or black nationalist movement received their induction notices as soon as they turned 18. Um, A lot of African-Americans opposed the draft because they believed they were not equal citizens in the United States. Uh, That was their main argument, that if they were full citizens, then they would have a military obligation. But since the nation treated them as second-class citizens, they did not have the obligation. And that young man expressed a view that was rather prevalent among many of the black draft evaders that this was just yet another form of American slavery. One black draftee remarked, I was drafted in the military, I had nothing, served in Vietnam, I came home, and I still have nothing. So a lot of them felt used and then discarded, which again was a general feeling among many of the Vietnam veterans. But for African Americans, it had a particular poignancy because they often returned to lower-income neighborhoods, little chance for job opportunities. They did have the GI Bill, which helped, and they did have many of the civil rights organizations to help, particularly the Urban League. But for a lot of African Americans, it really was far worse of a transition than it was for whites. In fighting on two fronts, you're referring to fighting in Vietnam and fighting for racial equality back home in the States. You write there that Vietnam really killed the classic civil rights movement by dividing it. How did that come to be? Well, the war killed the classic civil rights movement two ways. One was funding. As the Johnson administration escalated the war in Vietnam, there was less money available for Johnson's Great Society, which included help for the civil rights movement. Secondly, it divided the civil rights movement internally. The more radical organizations, especially CORE and SNCC, 
began to turn against the war early, the older and more established organizations, such as the NAACP, they were reluctant to criticize Lyndon Johnson on the war because of his support for the civil rights movement. Even Dr. King was reluctant to come out publicly and vehemently against the war till 1967, and this caused an internal division in the movement, and eventually it would tear him apart. Martin Luther King Jr. did speak out against the war on April 4, 1967, at Riverside Church in New York City. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony watching Negro and white boys on TV screens they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seek them together in the same schools. How much changed with race relations among the soldiers after the assassination of Martin Luther King in April of 1968? Well, for a lot of the African Americans, they believed that everything had changed. Dr. King had been the great hope for the black community. He was probably the single greatest hero of the soldiers in Vietnam. And his death was not only a great shock, but it also confirmed their view that white America was racist and violent. It would not even accept peaceful change. So Dr. King's death did help set off a cycle of extreme frustration and violence in the military. Sam Black interviewed a soldier who remembers hearing about King's death on a transport plane flying over the Pacific. And it was announced um, on the intercom on the plane. And he said the plane just went silent after that. Nobody really said anything for the rest of the time. And then by the time the plane landed in Vietnam and he was departing the plane, he said, you know, I never wanted to be there. And I just didn't have it in my heart to fight in this war. Uh, knowing what had happened to uh, Dr. King. Two years after King's assassination, Chris Moore was serving in Vietnam. At first, he supported the U.S. government's goal to stop the spread of communism. But then something changed. A warning to listeners, this next comment has some offensive language. I bought hook, line, and sinker, that whole argument. Even in high school on the debate teams, I was the only one who would take, we need to be in Southeast Asia. I'd take that point of view, or all the other countries there would fall, the domino theory. And so I really believed in it, uh, and I joined, and I went, and boy, was I surprised. My aha moment beyond seeing uh, the death and the destruction and the results of it, the dead bodies and that sort of thing, was one day I used to take responsibility for clearing the road. I carried a tow bar on my bumper, and any truck that broke down, I would hook that truck up and tow it in uh, so that the truck and the driver would be safe. And one day I was towing a truck in, and you have to know that these are just two-lane roads, not marked, uh, barely paved, and we were the biggest thing unless it was a piece of armor on the road, and here I am towing another five-ton with 10 tons of rock on it, and I started to pass this bus. I came over a hill, and 
uh, I started to go around the bus and my truck cleared it, but the truck I was pulling couldn't. And there was a Lambretta, a little three-wheel kind of golf cart coming toward me in his lane. And we used to run him off the road and laugh about it. And this guy wouldn't move. He stopped right in the middle of his lane. And I had to jam on the brakes with all that weight pushing it and uh, slid right up to him. And he was just cursing me out. And, he, you know, at first I cursed him. And then I realized I'm in this man's country, in the wrong, about to run him over and make him a grease spot or run over on the bus and run all those people off in or off a cliff and kill them. And I thought something came over me, and I thought, what in the hell are you doing, Ma? And after that, I would not call them gooks anymore. That was what we called the Vietnamese, and we'd say nothing but a gook. Uh, and, and I think that was the effort, uh, the propaganda effort they used to make us think that they were less than human. So it was okay to kill a gook, but it wasn't okay to kill a human being. Okay to kill a gook. Can you imagine that? After that, I wouldn't call them gooks anymore, and I would stop people who did, and I'd tell them, that's same, same, you call me nigga back in the world, man. And, they, and the guys would look at me like, is he crazy? i say, think about it, think about it. You know, I'm a gook too. I'm a nigga too. You're a spick too. You're a honky too. Uh, and those names are hurtful, they're mean, they're disrespectful, and they intend to make you less than human. And in a war zone, that means it's okay to kill you. Did this ultimately, after Vietnam, lead to a real introspection on the part of the military to change the culture of race relations? Oh, most certainly. And they began to take it far more seriously as the 60s progressed. Admiral Elmo Zumwalt in the Navy, for example, when he became chief of naval operations, he made race relations and racial equality a top priority for the Navy. So when the upper leadership began to take the issue seriously and also stress the need to implement reforms, then things began to change. So have race relations in the military changed since Vietnam? A recent study by the organization Protect Our Defenders found that black soldiers are still twice as likely to be punished as white soldiers, and they point out a chilling resemblance to African-American experience with police and civilian courts. President Truman's 1948 executive order declared, there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed forces, without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. Seventy years later, we're still working on it. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. This is with good reason. Native Americans have been fighting in U.S. wars since the Revolution, but you wouldn't know it from the history books. 
when you talk to an Indian family, they'll tell you about grandpa, grandma, my brother, my aunt, you know, my son, I hope, is going to follow in my footsteps. Herman Viola spent decades gathering the stories of Native American veterans, which he published in a book called Warriors in Uniform, The Legacy of American Indian Heroism. I mean, when you travel in Indian reservations, like I have done a lot, you go to the high school on a reservation, and when you go into the cafeteria, there'll be pictures on the wall of the kids in the school in military uniform. You don't see that in non-Indian schools. It's the extreme patriotism. They love this country. More than 42,000 Native Americans served in Vietnam. Then and now, they serve at higher rates per capita than any other ethnic group. I grew up respecting veterans, and, and it became part of my culture is to be a veteran. This is Harvey Pratt, a retired leading forensic artist, a Cheyenne and Arapaho tribal member, and a Vietnam veteran. I grew up uh, around veterans, people coming and going from the Second World War to the Korean War. Uh, I've seen those guys come home, guys that were been prisoners, and, and our family, as we were little boys, they would send us, go over and shake, that, shake his hand, go over and see him, you know? Harvey joined the military because he wanted to be a warrior like those men he'd admired growing up. Oh, absolutely. That was uh, one of my goals, was uh, to join the military, you know, and have a career and experience the possibility of, of being a warrior. When Native American vets talk about being a warrior, they're often talking about something specific. It means a host of characteristics, integrity, honor, skill, bravery, but that's just the beginning. Being a warrior also includes something called counting coup. Counting coup is a very old tradition, and of course it comes from the French word coup d'etat. It was really a, the way to demonstrate bravery in conflict. Counting coup means you complete four brave acts. They're called war deeds. One war deed is to touch an enemy in battle, but you don't kill the enemy, you touch him. Another is to take a weapon away from an enemy. A third coup is to lead a war party that no one gets injured. And the fourth coup, of course, is capturing the horse. That's the ultimate. One of the Native American veterans Herman wrote about in his book is Carson Walks Over Ice. Carson Walks Over Ice told him about going to Vietnam to count coup. And I said to Carson, so uh, did you do all those? He says, well, he said he was in a firefight and a Viet Cong came rushing past him in the brush and I stepped out from behind the tree, grabbed him, took his rifle, and said in Vietnamese, run. He ran like hell. And my fellow soldiers saw me do that, and they said to me, Carson, why did you do that? Why didn't you kill him? He said, I had my reasons, but you saw me do it. That's all that matters. So those were the first two war deeds, touching an enemy and taking their weapon. And then he said he was in a number of firefights where his men went into battle. They all came back uninjured. War deed three, leading fighters into battle with no injuries. That left one more. So I said, what about that horse? He says, well, he said the Viet Cong just didn't have horses. I looked and looked. But one time I was on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and I hear this brush crackling. And I look up, and there is an elephant coming. There was a man on the elephant. He said, I have to say I shot him. And that elephant came running towards me, and it had a chain hanging around its neck. 
and I grabbed that chain. He said, now Herman, I wanted to tell you that elephant stopped when it wanted to stop, but I was hanging on. And when he stopped, I wrapped that chain around a tree, and there were three other elephants tied to that elephant, all of them loaded with guns and ammunition. And so I felt that I had done my coup, and when I got home and told the story to the old people, they said, Carson, nice try, but elephants aren't horses, they don't count. Native American soldiers were bringing their culture to Vietnam, but they also faced some uncomfortable cultural stereotypes from their fellow soldiers. And I heard it when I was over there, they'd say, let the Indian do it, they're good at that, you know? Here's Harvey Pratt again. Like if you're on point, let them go ahead and see what's going on. You know, the Indians are good at that. The one thing that they all said is that when they were in military service, because they were Indians, their fellow soldiers would call them chief. Hey, chief, do this, you know, that sort of thing. Herman Viola says most Native American veterans told him things were pretty good in combat. You know, in the military, there's a camaraderie that I think exceeds a lot of other things that come around. You're in combat together. You're not worried about someone's skin color, their religion, whatever. It's, we're all in this together. That camaraderie in uniform sometimes changed the way Native American soldiers saw things back home, particularly during World War II. It really woke them up to the idea of the racism that was in America. Joe Medicine Crow said when he came back, you know, he says here in Europe, people wanted to hug him, kiss him, come back to America, he couldn't even vote. Which brings us to one of the things that can be most difficult to understand about Native American military culture. Native Americans have been treated terribly by the American government. And yet they served, tens of thousands of them. A lot of people you know, say, why would Indians want to serve when we've tried to take away their language, their culture, their homeland? And the Indian will look at you and laugh and say, this is our country, and we are protecting our homeland. And if you white people want to come along for the ride, that's fine. It didn't bother me because Indian people have spilt their blood all over this nation. We still fought for this country before we were even citizens. It doesn't make any difference what you believe and, and how much things have happened. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to defend this country and our blood is spilt all over Europe, all over this earth. The Vietnam War became publicly very unpopular and for many soldiers, the welcome home was notoriously bleak. For Native Americans, though, things were different. For Indian people, the feeling was they had done their duty, they have been answered the call to help their country, and they were treated with real great dignity and respect. There was none of this kind of vilification for Indians in their communities that the white community had. The welcome home from Vietnam that many Native American veterans received made a difference for them in the long run. When someone goes into the military, there are blessing ceremonies, and when they return, they have these same sort of ceremonies. There are people who can pray over them, kind of clear up the, the spirits that might haunt them from the conflicts they've been in. And so for Indian people, you know, they don't suffer the PTSD, let's say, that non-Indians do, because in our society, we just have this whole community of bringing people together to help honor 
and welcome back service people or to send them off. When I got out, I moved on. A lot of people didn't move on. They stayed there. They let those things eat on them. And I find that most of the Indian men moved on because of this, the ceremonies that they went through and the commitment they had. I think that we are people of, of ceremony and I believe that if you make a promise to do something, the Creator's going to say, he's making an effort to do something. I'll, I might just help this little man here, you know, to do something. Harvey might have moved on, but he still remembers. And now he's helping others commemorate the war. The first ever Veterans Memorial, dedicated to Native Americans, is about to be built in Washington, D.C., and it was designed by Harvey. This is Harvey explaining his design to the selection jury. When we speak of the sacred circle, we look uh, and realize that Native people honored the sacredness of a circle. You look at the lifestyle of mankind and birth and young man, and then, then they're into maturity, and then they're in elders, and there's a circle of life that, that they respect. You see the circle also incorporates the seasons. It's continuous. It's timeless. That's what our culture is about. It's, it's, it's a powerful object. The memorial is set to open on Veterans Day 2020. Herman hopes it helps other Americans realize how much Native American veterans have given. It's going to really wake up the world to the fact of Indians in their military service. When I go around Indian country, I've been having a meet with Indian veterans. You would be amazed at how many of them break up, almost start crying when they talk about this because it is such a powerful moment for them. It's invariably, the statement comes out, finally the American people are going to see we're the friends of America, not the enemies. At the same time that indigenous American warriors were fighting in Vietnam, the indigenous Vietnamese trained to fight right alongside them. During the war, the Montagnards, as they were called, were invaluable to American soldiers. Montagnard is a French word that means mountaineer. This is Carlos Messer. He's an Air Force colonel, and he spent some time studying the Montagnard people. The, the Montagnards had been in, in Vietnam for over 2,000 years, and eventually they were completely dwelling in the highlands. It's an area of over 50,000 square kilometers. It's mostly rugged kind of mountain peaks with a lot of forest, some very good soil. So they hunted, they fished, they farmed. Were they well-liked by other Vietnamese people? Uh, no. The Vietnamese viewed them as people that lived up in the mountains, and those were bad places. That's where the evil spirits lived. So that was kind of a, the underlying cultural disparity for the most part, the Vietnamese consider them somewhat of savages and second-class citizens. My name is uh, Rong Nai, and uh, I'm from the central highland of Vietnam. This is Rong Nai. He's a Montagnard man and a war veteran. He now lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. He says the Montagnards don't even consider themselves to be Vietnamese. Vietnamese is the Montagnard is uh, quite different, different the language culture, traditional, and the way of life. Long before U.S. troops were in Vietnam, 
Montagnards were teaming up with another outsider nation, France. So the late 1800s, the French were looking to expand the French colonial empire. So that's how the French started exploring Indochina, and they found out that it had vast resources, but they, they had no way to tap them. It was pretty inhospitable once you got off the coastlines. Enter the Montagnards. They could act as local experts, but they wanted something in return. One of the things the Montagnards wanted was autonomy. The most important thing for the Montagnards had always been their freedom. Remember, they didn't even think of themselves as Vietnamese. They wanted their own country, free from Vietnamese rule. And the French agreed. The French actually signed an agreement um, that recognized the Montagnard's autonomy separately from the Vietnamese. Things were working out pretty well for the Montagnards, until... The French were under siege in Indochina. Um, The Vietnamese weren't happy with French rule. The Chinese weren't happy. The North Vietnamese communists, the Viet Minh, They wanted the Western powers out of there. And eventually, the French were forced out of Vietnam. The French were defeated in Indochina by communist forces. That was the end of the French involvement in Vietnam. That meant the Montagnards were back under Vietnamese control. So really, the Montagnards kind of went back to square one. They were just a group of people that lived in the highlands that were now under the scrutiny of a somewhat corrupt and inept South Vietnamese government. In the meantime, the U.S. had gotten involved in the Vietnamese conflict. So the CIA realized, hey, here's a group of people that had supported the French, who were our allies. They were sympathetic to Western ideas, and they really don't like the Vietnamese. So all those things added up to an opportunity to get in there and at least get their foot in the door. The Montagnards opened that door and welcomed Americans in. Special forces in particular recognized the value of working with the Montagnards to achieve special forces' goals in the war. U.S. soldiers trained the locals in modern warfare. In return, the Montagnards provided intimate knowledge of a landscape that was so foreign to Americans. Plus, they were incredibly warm to the outsiders. But Americans, they love us. We are honest, even though we don't have much education like uh, Vietnamese. Americans prepared them with intense and accelerated lessons on new fighting techniques and technology. The Montagnard Joint Special Force, they practice a jump airborne. In the U.S., they learn a year or six months. But the Montagnard, they learn very quickly. Three months, they can jump everywhere. They were so quick to grasp ideas. You know, it wasn't like you were dealing with a, an uneducated people. This is Larry Murley. In 1962, he spent four months in the central highlands of Vietnam, living with and training Montagnards. We had gone to, a, uh, to Play Coup, pretty close to the Cambodian border there, to a uh, French plantation. That was where I met my first Montagnard people. I'll have to tell you right here, I was quite shocked. I wasn't expecting. They lived in a village. Some of the bigger villages had longhouses where a lot of them lived in. The village I didn't, it had smaller structures. The men wore a, um, I call them breech clout. It's a simple piece of cloth that goes between their legs. The women wore about the same thing. 
very, very touchy. That was, of course, you know, growing up in American culture, for another man to take your hand and hold hands with you was kind of a strange feeling, you know, to say the least. And uh, uh, they were so protective. They would, you know, they would risk their neck. And I'm sure there's, there was a couple of three times that, you know, had they not, I wouldn't be here today. Larry wasn't in Vietnam very long. Captured and imprisoned, he got sent home shortly after an escape. But in his time there, he got attached to the Montagnards, and he hasn't forgotten them. And the way things ended with them, it didn't sit well with Larry. We abandoned him. Here's a people that did nothing but care for us, and we walked off and left him standing in the middle of the road. The Montagnards and the U.S. forces fought together for years. But when the U.S. lost the war and was forced to retreat, American soldiers were nearly powerless to help them. The Montagnards were now left to defend themselves against a government who had grown more powerful and less tolerant than ever before. That evening I flew out of Vietnam on the uh, 10th of May. The uh, plane headed out, you know, off from the runway, headed out west. And then as we gained some altitude, he banked back to turn back over the uh, South China Sea. And I just felt a, a real sad feeling that, you know, I felt empty, you know. What do we now know became of the Montagnards that didn't make it out? That's not a very good story. This is Colonel Carlos Messer again. Many of them were executed. Thousands were sent to re-education camps. And then even more were just pushed further into the highlands. That's typically what I understand most of them did. They tried to get across the border to Cambodia, into Laos, but those weren't very hospitable places for them either. Rong Nai was one of those Montagnards who was left behind. The North Vietnamese arrested and imprisoned him, mostly because of his work with the Americans. He gives three reasons for the persecution of the Montagnards. Number one, because of the land. The land is the heart of the Montagnard. Second, because we are the Grecian. Number three, because we are fought along side with American during the war, we, we pay the price. Since the 1970s, the population of the Montagnards has been decimated. At the heart of it are these reasons. Land, religion, revenge. How much are we to blame? And was there something more we could have done? I asked Colonel Messer. What we've tried to do over time, especially in the more recent military history, is really not make those indigenous populations so involved with U.S. forces that it puts them in danger after the fact. Um, even though we couldn't do anything for them at the time, we have diplomatic relations with Vietnam. And in my personal opinion, if we wanted to affect some change as far as human rights violations are concerned with the Montagnards, we have some tools and leverage to do that. But it requires it to be an issue that's on the front burner. Just personally, do you wish we were doing more for the Montagnards, either 
on our shores or in Vietnam? Yeah, I, I do. I do. Because I'm a believer in, in good faith. That's the American military way. Hey, we said we would help you, and there are opportunities for us to make a difference. Now, I don't know how big of a difference that could make, but I'm not aware of us even asking the question. I miss uh, my, my people back in the Vietnam. All the land is gone. We lost the land. We lost the culture. We lost the way of life. Rong also hopes the U.S. government will use its power to stop the human rights violations against his people and to bring those seeking asylum here to America. And yet many of the Montagnards who are already in the United States are suffering here. There are still so many Montagnards living in poverty or still struggling with their health, not feeling like they belong. Sun H. is 23 years old. Her family escaped through the jungle after the war and spent two years in a Cambodian refugee camp. I think it's sometimes very difficult for my parents to talk about the history and the war because they've had to leave Vietnam, go to Cambodia, and then come back to Vietnam just to find a place where they were safe. When Soon was four years old, they made their way to the United States. They settled in North Carolina, which has the largest number of Montagnard people outside Southeast Asia. We found her at an event called Montagnard Artist Day at the North Carolina Museum of History. We have a good amount of Montagnard youth that are interested in preserving our culture. But sometimes it feels like an uphill battle. I think it's very difficult for Montagnards to feel like they fit in into this community or this society. I think like one way that we all can do is just try to be open and, you know, help the Montagnards to feel like this is their home too. This is the second of four episodes in our series on the Vietnam War. If you have a story about the Vietnam War and would like to be interviewed, email us at withgoodreason at virginia.edu. This program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor. Support also comes from Eric Fox and Bogie Holland. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>